I don't know if you've ever been mistakenly identified. Someone thinks you're someone else. Well, last week, that's what happened to a poor chap called Guy Goma. And let me tell you what happened. I found it really quite amusing. Guy is a graduate from the Congo. And he had applied to the BBC for a job in the Business Information Department. And so the big day arrived, Guy turned up in his suit at the BBC Television Centre in London, ready for his job interview. But for Guy, it was just going to be one of those days. Producers at BBC News 24, who were covering a news story about Apple the computer company, mistakenly thought Guy Goma was Guy Cuny, an internet expert. And you'll never guess what happened next. You do guess. The the producer went to collect Guy Cuny. But he went to the wrong reception. And he collected Guy Goma instead. Within a few minutes, Mr. Goma, the job applicant, was live (laughs) on national television being asked questions about Apple, the computer company. Assuming he was being interviewed for a job. This is all true. The real IT expert was eventually found, waiting patiently in reception, and watching a television screen (laughs) in utter disbelief. Later, Guy Goma said his appearance was very stressful. A BBC spokesman said, this has turned out to be a genuine misunderstanding. So let me ask you this. What about the Christian faith? Is it true? Or like the BBC, is it all just a genuine misunderstanding? Have Christians somehow mistakenly identified Jesus? Dan Brown, author of the hugely successful novel The Da Vinci Code, gave us an answer to that question. And here's what he said. Almost everything... Our fathers taught us about Christ is false. Now, if you haven't read the book, and if you haven't seen the film yet, let me tell you a bit about the Da Vinci Code. The book has sold almost 40 million copies. It has been translated into 40 languages. If you travel by train, someone is bound to be reading it. And it has earned Dan Brown a cool £140 million. So then, what is the book all about? Well, here is a summary of the basic storyline. Here we go. For centuries, the Catholic Church has kept the true facts about Christianity hidden through force and terror. Jesus was married to Mary Magdalene, who was the head apostle. The Holy Grail is not, as commonly believed, the chalice used at the Lord's Supper, but the womb of Mary Magdalene, who bore Jesus' daughter, called Sarah. The descendants of Mary Magdalene and Jesus became kings of France. Jesus was not the Son of God, but he was a mortal prophet, a great and powerful man of staggering influence, who inspired millions to live better lives. The Emperor Constantine proposed a motion to upgrade Jesus to a deity at the Council of Nicaea in 325 AD. Jesus became the Son of God by a narrow vote. But prior to that, 
No one believed him, believes him to be divine. And finally, Constantine's motive was to give power to the Roman Catholic Church. So says Dan Brown. At the heart of it all, you'll notice there is this one big question that has huge implications for each one of us tonight. And it's this. Who is Jesus Christ? Who is Jesus Christ? Is he really the Son of God? Or was he just a great but mortal individual like all of us? And so tonight, I invite you to join me with an open mind as we investigate together the greatest question on earth. Who is Jesus Christ? We're going to begin by looking at the Bible. So let's turn to 1 Corinthians and chapter 15 and verses 1 to 11. It's page number 1155 of the Pew Bibles. 1 Corinthians and chapter 15 verses 1 to 11. So 1 Corinthians 15 and verse 1. And it says this. Now brothers, I want to remind you of the gospel I preached to you, which you received and on which you have taken your stand. By this gospel you are saved, if you hold firmly to the word I preached to you. Otherwise you have believed in vain. For what I received, I passed on to you as of first importance. That Christ died for our sins, according to the scriptures. That he was buried, that he was raised on the third day, according to the scriptures. And that he appeared to Peter and then to the twelve. After that, he appeared to more than five hundred of the brothers at the same time. Most of whom are still living though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles, and last of all, he appeared to me also, as to one abnormally born. For I am the least of the apostles, and do not even deserve to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am, and his grace to me was not without effect, No, I worked harder than all of them, yet not I, but the grace of God that was with me. Whether then it was I or they, this is what we preach, and this is what you believed. Amen. Mark Twain once gave a definition of faith, and here's what Mark Twain said. Faith is believing something you know ain't true. So, is Mark Twain right? Well, here in this chapter, we discover why the first disciples really did believe that Jesus Christ is the unique Son of God. And the reason is, he rose from the dead, just like he said he would. But let's stop, and let's imagine that didn't happen. Okay? Let's suppose Dan Brown is right. What would that mean? Well, let's take a look. The chapter, the chapter continues. In verse 14, it says this, The Christian faith would be useless. Verse 15, The apostles are liars. Verse 17, We are still in our sins. There is no forgiveness, 
and no end to the guilt that we can feel deep within us. Verse 18, the dead are lost forever. Verse 19, Christians are to be pitied more than all people since they have endured persecution for their faith. And verse 32 sums it up. Everything is pointless. Let us eat and drink for tomorrow we die. Nothing and no one matters. You may as well do what you please. And so tonight, as we explore this person called Jesus, we're going to focus in on two foundational questions. Number one, did Jesus really rise? Did Jesus really rise? And number two, does it really matter? Does it really matter? And so firstly, did Jesus really rise? Now let me ask you a question. Do you ever feel as though some things are just too good to be true? Yes? For example, in a few weeks' time, we're flying off to Chicago. And the last time I was in Chicago, something fantastic happened. And I'll share it with you. I was flying back with Air France, and so I went to the check-in desk at O'Hare International Airport. I smiled sweetly and showed my passport, and I was told that they had overbooked the flight. But that was the good news. And I'll tell you why. Because here's what they offered me. If I transferred and flew with British Midlands, I would be on a direct flight to Glasgow. And catch this, I would be given £200 for my inconvenience. And the cheque would be in the post. Now, if you were me, would you believe that? Well, I didn't, it's not at all. But to my sheer delight, it was true. And the evidence was in the cheque that dropped through my letterbox a few days later which I very quickly cashed, and which I very quickly spent, all on myself. Now, here's the point. When you come to something as monumental as the resurrection of Jesus, you really need to know, is it true? In other words, can I really, really believe this? And so tonight, I want us to look at three pieces of evidence. And the first is this. The body disappeared. The body disappeared. Take a look at verses 3 to 7. Now these are newsflash important verses. And let me explain why. Historians tell us that this was an early Christian creed. Given to Paul around AD 35. And that's just two or three years after the crucifixion. So what does it say? Look at verse 3. For what I received, I passed on to you as of first importance... That Christ died for our sins, according to the scriptures. That he was buried, that he was raised on the third day, according to the scriptures. And that he appeared to Peter, and then to the twelve. After that, he appeared to more than five hundred of the brothers at the same time. Most of whom are still living, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles. Now, for some of you, you may be able to think way back to the 22nd of November, 1963. That was before I was born, just in case you're wondering. And you may know where you were when you heard the news that President John F. Kennedy had been shot in Dallas, Texas. For millions of Americans, their leader was now dead. Now imagine this. Imagine if a group of people who loved John F. Kennedy met regularly to remember him. What would they celebrate? Well, possibly his confrontation with Russia. 
his proclamation, his promotion, sorry, of civil rights and his charismatic personality. But here's what they're definitely not going to celebrate. They will not celebrate the fact that Lee Harvey Oswald murdered him. They would never do that. But that's analogous to what these early Christians did. So how do you explain that? Well, there's only one credible explanation. It's because his murder wasn't the last word. The last word was that he conquered death for all of us by rising from the dead. As the Bible says, For Christ died for sins once for all, the righteous for the unrighteous, to bring you to God. He is put to death in the body, but made alive by the Spirit. William Lane Craig is a brilliant professor, and he must love stress because he has two earned doctorates. But here's what he says about the empty tomb. Listen to what he says. And ask yourself what you make of this simple logic. Now here's the crux of his argument. And he says this. The sight of Jesus' tomb was known to Christian and Jew alike. So if it weren't empty, it would be impossible for a movement founded on belief in the resurrection to have come into existence in the same city where this man had been publicly executed and buried. So firstly, the body disappeared. And secondly, the Lord reappeared. The Lord reappeared. Now let me illustrate this. Yesterday was a special day for me. Why? Because I had tea in Holyrood Palace, along with 3,000 other people. And I could tell you who was there, and I could tell you who wore the fanciest hat with the biggest feathers. Why? Because I was there. I had seen it with my own eyes. Now consider this. In the Da Vinci Code, one of the book's main characters, Sir Lee Teabing, makes an astonishing claim. And he says this, until that moment, that is the Council of Nicaea in 325 AD, Jesus was viewed by his followers as a mortal prophet, a great and powerful man, but a man, nonetheless, a mortal. So what are we to make of this? Is Dan Brown right? Is it all just a colossal conspiracy? And should we therefore shut down Charlotte Chapel tomorrow morning? Well, to start with, Dan Brown would get a great E for history. Listen to what the eminent New Testament professor, N.T. Wright, delicately writes. Here's what N.T. Wright says. Details abound, which make the first century historian snort and want to throw the book into the fire. We may safely conclude then that the Da Vinci Code is fiction, not just in its characters and plot, but in most of its other details as well. And in 1 Corinthians 15, we discover why. It's because many people had actually seen the risen Jesus with their own eyes. If you don't believe me, Paul says, go and speak to them. They will give you an eyewitness account. If you look at verse 5, there was Peter. He once denied knowing Christ, but he was now proclaiming that Jesus is alive. There were the twelve, the disciples of Jesus, in verse 6, there were the 500 who saw the risen Christ. Notice, most of whom are still living. In verse 7, notice, there was James, the Lord's half-brother. He did not even believe in Christ before the resurrection. But who had now become a leader in the church at Jerusalem. 
And in verse 8, there was Paul himself. So Edward Clark, a high court judge, who carried out a thorough legal analysis of the first Easter day, concludes. To me, the evidence is conclusive. And over and over again, in the high court, I have secured the verdict on evidence not nearly so compelling. As a lawyer, I accept the gospel evidence unreservedly as the testimony of truthful men to facts that they were able to substantiate. And so firstly, the body disappeared. Secondly, the Lord reappeared. And now thirdly, the church emerged. The church emerged. Now in Thursday after work, I brought back home Alison a present. That's the kind of guy that I am. Now it wasn't flowers. It was two cinema tickets for the Da Vinci Code showing on Friday night. What could be better? But you know, as I watched that film, I couldn't help but think back to the passion of the Christ. If you've ever seen that film, you remember that after Jesus died on a cross, the disciples were discouraged and depressed. But look at what happened next. They spent the rest of their lives proclaiming that Jesus had risen and the church emerged. And many of them were killed because of that. So why? What had changed? Well, it's because the tomb was empty. And they were convinced, beyond a shadow of a doubt, that Jesus was alive from the dead. Now, here's the point. Nobody, knowingly and willingly, dies for a lie. Think about that. Nobody, knowingly and willingly, dies for a lie. Now, people will die for their religious convictions if they sincerely believe that they are true. Correct? And we've seen that throughout history. Yet they don't know for, for a fact whether their faith is based on truth. But notice, these disciples were willing to die for someone that they had seen with their own eyes and touched with their own hands after he had risen from the dead. Sir Lionel Lockhu is described in the Guinness Book of World Records as the world's most successful lawyer. And he sums it up for us when he says this. I say unequivocally that the evidence for the resurrection of Jesus Christ is so overwhelming that it compels acceptance by proof which leaves absolutely no room for doubt. But here's our final question. Does it really matter? Does it really matter? And the answer is emphatically yes. And tonight we heard from Helen as to why it matters. And firstly, it matters in the past. If you look at verse 17, we see that our, our past, our rebellion against God, can be forgiven in verse 17. Mar Margarita Lasky, one of our best known secular humanists, a moment of candor, not long before she died, said this, What I envy most about you Christians is your forgiveness. I have nobody to forgive me. And I thought that was absolutely tragic. Someone put it this way, If our greatest need had been information, God would have sent us an educator. 
if our greatest need had been technology, God would have sent us a scientist. If our greatest need had been money, God would have sent us an economist. If our greatest need had been pleasure, God would have sent us an entertainer. But our greatest need was forgiveness. So God sent us a saviour. And the question is, have you been there yet? Have you been there yet? So it matters in the past. And it matters in the present. I love what John Newton once wrote. He wrote Amazing Grace. He said this. He looked inside of his heart and he said, I am not what I might be. I am not what I ought to be. I am not what I wish to be. I am not what I hope to be. But he says, I thank God. I am not what I once was. And I can say with the great apostle, by the grace of God, I am what I am. You see, the resurrection gives you power to live a new life. Like Paul in verses 9 and 10, and like Helen tonight, he could say, God changed me. It wasn't a self-help book called Release Your Full Potential, and it wasn't a new diet. He said, no, it was God who changed me. I wonder if you can say that tonight. God changed me. And finally, it matters in the future. And we see that in verses 42 and 43. We sometimes sing a song in Charlotte Chapel. I'm not going to sing it tonight. But the words go like this. And we are raised with him. Death is dead. Love has won. Christ has conquered. And we shall reign with him. For he lives. Christ is risen from the dead. I wonder if that is your assurance tonight. That death is not the end. It can be a glorious beginning. Why? Because Christ is risen. And so tonight, we have looked at this person called Jesus. This one who is God's unique son. This one who is risen from the dead. And nothing matters more. My challenge to you, as we close, is simply this. How will you respond tonight? How will you respond tonight? The Bible says this, that if you confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. I wonder if you will take that step tonight. Let us pray. Now, some people say, I would like to respond, but how do I start? Well, tonight, I'm going to read a prayer from a booklet called Journey into Life. If you want to respond tonight, you can pray this quietly after me, and it's also on the screen. Let us pray together. Lord Jesus Christ, I know I have sinned in my thoughts, words, and actions. There are so many good things I have not done. There are so many sinful things I have done. I am sorry for my sins and turn from everything I know to be wrong. You gave your life upon the cross for me. 
Gratefully, I give my life back to you. Now I ask you to come into my life. Come in as my saviour to cleanse me. Come in as my Lord to control me. And I will serve you all the remaining years of my life in complete obedience. Amen. Heavenly Father, thank you that everyone who seeks you will find you. And thank you that you were seeking us before we ever sought you. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Lord, if someone has responded tonight to you, give them the courage to tell someone about that great step they have taken. And we ask this in Jesus' name and for his glory. Amen.